You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question. Where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin. Today, I'm pleased to introduce you to David Bell. David is the USA Today bestselling author of 12 novels from Berkeley Penguin, including The Finalist, Kill All Your Darlings, The Request, and Layover. His work has been translated into numerous foreign languages, included on several bestseller lists, nominated for the Pushcart Prize five times, and recently his 13th novel, Kill All Your Darlings, was nominated for a 2022 Edgar Award. He joins me today to talk about his latest novel, The Finalist. Welcome to Uncorking Story, David. Hey, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Yep. Happy to have you here, David. I'm going to ask you the same question I ask everybody to start with, which is, uh, where does your story as an author begin? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I wasn't a kid who wrote a lot of stories. Sometimes there are authors who say like, oh, I was writing as soon as I could, you know, pick up a pencil or whatever. And I was not one of those kids, but it did start in my childhood with reading a lot. And I trace this back. I like to blame my parents for as many things as possible. So I blame my parents for this, which is when I was a kid, both of my parents read a lot. And my dad especially read a lot and read a lot of novels. He read a lot of mysteries and Westerns and spy stories and things like that. And so when I think of my dad, my dad died like 11 and a half years ago. But when I think of my dad, I picture him sitting in our house in Cincinnati. He had the same gold cardigan sweater that he wore for like a thousand years. He smoked cigars when I was a kid. And just I can picture him sitting in our house with his gold cardigan sweater on, smoking a cigar and reading a book and, and ignoring us. That was probably why he read the book so that we would leave him alone. But to me, like he was always reading and he was always engrossed in a book. And I thought reading seemed so important to him. And I thought it must be interesting to read. It must be interesting to read these books because this is this is all he seems to want to do. And so I became a reader at that point. And my dad always took me to the library and the bookstore and all that. And so it's just started with a love of reading. And then eventually, as I got older, I realized, first of all, that these books were being written by actual human beings, right? That there's sometimes we think, and it's true, I think that we read a lot of classic books in high school and college that have been written by people who are long dead or, you know, or whatever. But a lot of books obviously are being written by people who are alive and well and are right here and are, you know. And so I figured that out. Not all authors are dead. 
some of them are making a living or attempting to make a living doing this. And maybe I could do that. I love books. I love reading. I don't have any other abilities. I had no other abilities. So maybe that could be something I could do. So I always just trace it back to my parents. Both of them read a lot. My mom read a lot too. My mom read more nonfiction, but it just, it went back to that experience as a child. Yeah. Yeah. So many people tell me the same thing or something similar. Because I'll ask them, hey, what's the key to success for being a strong author? And they say, a love of reading. It really has to come first because you can become a student of the craft just by absorbing how different authors are telling their stories. Yeah. And I have actually had the, because I teach at a university, I've had the experience a couple of times of students who say that they want to be a writer. And I will say, well, what do you like to read? And this has happened a couple of times where the students have said, well, I don't read anything. I don't really read. And I think, is there any other discipline? Like if, you, if someone came to you and said, I really want to be a musician. And you said, well, what music do you listen to? And they said, I've never listened to music. Like I don't like, like that, you know, but right. there, are, there are actually people I think who think that. But yeah, it has to start with reading because you can absorb the way other people tell stories you don't even have to take a class. You can just absorb the way people tell stories. I think it gets into your subconscious. And then when you start writing, you can figure it out from there. Yeah. So when you went away to school, what did you, what did you study? What did you major in? I majored in English and I minored in history. And again, I, I mean, I always had a vague notion that I wanted to be a writer just because I like books and reading so much. But, but like anytime I tried to write something, I had no idea what I was doing. And I was, I think I was really afraid of being bad at it, which is probably what a lot of people feel. They're just afraid of being bad at it. So I majored in English, but I didn't take a creative writing class until my senior year. That was really the time when I actually sat down and tried to write something for real for the first time was Mm -hmm. my senior year of college. And how long between that time, you know, taking that creative writing class, writing something, you know, yourself to kind of getting the first book published. What was the, what was the timeline there? Well, if you are an an aspiring writer and you're young, cover your ears, but it was like 16 years. I didn't have my first book published till I think I was about 38. And I finished college when I just last year, when I was 38, I left college, you know, I graduated from college when I was 22. So it was a long time. Now, I did publish some short stories along the way in small magazines, and I went to graduate school. And I won't say that I was writing faithfully and diligently all the time, but I do tell my students this, and I tell a lot of people this, writing is, there are some people, I think, who succeed young. It's rare. I think most writers publish their first books you know, when they're in their 30s or their 40s or even later, and it, it just takes a long time to be accomplished at it. Yeah. I mean, I think there's probably also something to, I mean, obviously there are exceptions, right? So I've, I've interviewed plenty of, you know, 22-year-old people in this program where lightning just strikes and the, and the stars align. But I think there is something to just having enough life experience or interesting life experience to kind of shape your worldview, which will then come across in whatever story you're trying to tell. Yeah, you have to have life experience. And I also think that I'm not trying to say that writing is a more difficult discipline than other things like being an actor or being a musician or whatever. But writing is something you do alone, by and large. 
Like if you want to be a famous rock star or whatever, if you find yourself fortunate enough to meet other people who are really talented at music, you know, you can go along for the ride with that, right? You know, and, and if you're an actor or a performer in that way, you can meet other people and you're doing this thing together. Whereas I think a writer, it's, you're doing it alone and it's your own discipline and it's your own mind and your own drive. And so it's part of it is the life experience. Part of it is just the discipline and the amount of time it takes to do it, do it alone. So I think, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. 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 Well, let's talk about your latest, the finalist. What can you tell us about the finalists? So the finalist is a locked room mystery. And what happens in the finalists is it takes place at a small fictional private college in Kentucky called Hyde College, which was founded by the Hyde family. Major Ezekiel Hyde came home from the Civil War and founded a college in the 1860s. And this college has been around for 150 years. And the Hyde family, which has now become, now own this massive corporation called the Hyde Corporation. They're involved in fossil fuels. They're involved in everything. They are basically bankrolling this small private college. And every year, they give a highly lucrative scholarship to a rising senior at the school. So every spring, they pick at random, at random. Six students who have financial need. And on a Saturday afternoon, those students get locked in a house on the edge of campus with an administrator from the school and with the heir to the Hyde fortune. They have tea. They have to swear a creepy oath. They have a written exam. They have lunch. They have a shot of bourbon. They have an interview. And the heir to the Hyde fortune picks the winner at the end of the day. That person gets free tuition, free room and board, free books, student loan forgiveness up to $100,000, and a job with the Hyde Corporation when they graduate. All you have to do is sit in the house all day and pass this exam. On this particular day, the 152nd awarding of the Hyde Scholarship, when they get locked in the house, spoiler alert, people start dropping dead. Oh, no. They can't get out of the house. They're locked in. They've had to surrender all their devices, which is the scariest part for a college student is when that's like you have to give up your phone for eight hours. So they're locked in the house with a killer and they have to figure out who the killer is and can we get out of the house before they start striking again. Fascinating. What, how did this story come to you? I'm just curious. Was there a spark that, you know, that that came to you or what's, what's the backstory to it? There were a couple of things that went into it. So I teach, now I teach at a big public university, but my previous job I taught at a little private college in North Carolina that had a lot of financial trouble. And there are a lot of small private colleges that are having financial trouble these days because of the demographics. There aren't enough people like me who didn't have children. There aren't enough kids to go to college. So schools are struggling to stay afloat. And I taught at a school like that that was really dependent on, you know, wish the wish, the dream that some big donor would come along and bankroll the school. So I had that experience from teaching at that school. And then it was time to come up with an idea for another book. This is the annual ride of fall. I have to come up with an idea for the book. I submitted a a number of ideas to my editor and she came back and she didn't like any of the ideas well enough that I had given her, but she said, have you ever thought of writing a locked room story? And I think her impulse was just that do something different, stretch yourself a little bit, try something unusual. 
And I said, I've never thought of it, but I would be willing to try it. And so I combined those two things, the locked room story with my experience as a college professor now, but especially that experience from the small private college that was having money trouble. And I put those two things together. So it sounds like you have a very collaborative working arrangement with your, you said it was your editor, right? Not your agent. My editor, who's no longer my editor, she has left publishing to be a freelance editor, but yes. But I had the same editor at Berkeley for 12 books. Okay. How important is it to have like a good collaborative, you know, for all the aspiring authors out there, right? Because I think you were talking before, you know, writing is a very kind of lonely thing. It's solitary. You're kind of doing it on your own. There is a little bit of collaboration, you know, particularly once you become established, whether that's with your agent or with your editors, publishers. Tell me about the importance of that. Yeah, you're right. The writing part is lonely and you do that alone. But the book and the publishing part of it is a team effort. And just the cliche, it takes a village to make this book come out because sure, I can write a book, but I'm not a cover designer. I'm not a copy editor. I'm not a marketer. I don't know any of that stuff. So it is important to have a a whole team of people at a publisher like I'm at Berkeley, which is part of Penguin Random House. There's a whole team of people who work on the book and have been, and I've been fortunate, even though my editor left, I was, I've been fortunate that for a long, long time, there's been a lot of stability there. And it's a lot of the same people working on the books year after year. So we all know each other and we know how to work together and we trust each other and all that. So I do think it is important to have those people, whether it's your agent, your editor, and eventually, you know, when you, If you are publishing a book, you've got a publicist at the publisher, you've got marketing people, there are people up the food chain, the executives, the people who are making bigger decisions about your book. It is essential. So at some point, it's not a lonely process. At some point, you're working together with a whole group of people who are all trying to move in the same direction and get the book out there in the world. Yeah. I mean, you know, it it does remind you that it is a business, you know, it's not just, I mean, of course it's a, it's a creative business and, you know, you're creating these works of art, but it is a business, you know, you have to, there's marketing, there's distribution, there's, you know, knowing the audience and, you know, all the things that, you know, Procter and Gamble, you know, to name a company close to Cincinnati, right. Has to deal with when they're marketing, you know, Tide laundry detergent, you know, authors and their publishers have to have the same things to worry about and think about. I mean, it is a business. And I know that sometimes people get uncomfortable with that. Like they think like, oh, it's this precious work of art. And maybe some people's books are. I mean, I'm trying to write books that are commercial and have commercial appeal. That's not to say that it's I'm writing stories that are simply geared toward that. I'm trying to put myself in the books, too. But the goal is to sell books. The goal is to get people to want to read the book and to want to buy more books, right? And I can't do that alone because I don't have any skill in that area besides writing the book. So we're all dependent on other people who have skills in terms of marketing, publicity. And they they have connections to people that I don't have. They have connections to reviewers and, you know, people who sell ads and all that kind of stuff. And I'm not plugged into that in the way that they are. Right. Right. And connections to people like me. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you told me I'm not allowed to speak to you unless, you know, it's been vetted by. That's right. Yeah. So yeah. there's a long vetting process to get on the show. I mean, I don't know what you felt about the walking over hot coals, but hopefully <laughs> your feet have healed. 
They ha- I'm very tough here in Kentucky, so I can handle it. I could handle it. I've got a, I'm just looking at your background. I mean, obviously there's a lot of books. There's some nice pictures. I see a camera. I see like an old fashioned camera. Is, is there a story behind that camera? Oh, you're looking over here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I think that camera belonged to my dad. My dad, when I was in my conscious memory, I don't remember my dad doing anything with photography, but he had an old camera like this. And he had some like dark room equipment in the basement of our the house I grew up in. So it must have been a hobby that he was interested in. I guess I ruined it. He could have been a great photographer, but then I was born and all his plans went out the window and he just sat around reading books and smoking cigars. <laughs> but I think that's a camera that belonged to him that was just like floating around the house. And it's my the decor in the house. I can't take any responsibility for. That's my wife, Molly's handiwork. And she thought the camera was a nice piece to put out on the shelf like that. Certainly a conversation starter. Yeah, sure. There you go. Well, I do have some other questions for you. I always like to get to know people a little bit more. I always say that uncorking your stories about the story behind the story, which is your story. One way I do that is by digging into pop culture a little bit. So I'm curious, David, when you were growing up, what were some of your favorite TV shows? Yeah, that's a good question. I was the, you know, the generation of kids who, I mean, yeah, we were free range kids and we ran around a lot, but we also came home from school and watched TV a lot. And it's interesting. I think the two TV shows, like a, probably a lot of people my generation that I watched the most were Gilligan's Island and The Brady Bunch. Like those shows were on all the time in the afternoon. And I probably saw every episode of those shows forward and backward in all those years. That was a big one. Both of those were big. Sherwood Sherwood Schwartz basically shaped my worldview when I was a child. So yeah, those two, I can, it's, it would be interesting to watch episodes of those shows now. And like, I could probably recite the dialogue along with some of them. Yeah. You know, both of those shows come up quite a bit when I ask that question. And, you know, I always laugh about Gilligan's Island because it's such a ridiculous premise. You know, you know, these passengers, they're stranded. They've got this professor who can make a radio out of coconuts, but he can't build a boat. You know, it's like this desert island. And then, you know, the cannibals come out every now and then, you know, like the, the indigenous people from whatever island. They don't kill anybody, but, you know, they are a threat. You know, whenever you hear those Congo drums, you know, you, you know, the cannibals are, are kind of on the way, but I don't know. It's but it's a great show. And I remember like back in the 80s when they did like Return to Gilligan's Island or something yes. like that, like they did one of those made for TV movies or something. Yeah, I remember that when it was on again and, and they got rescued. Spoiler alert, they got rescued finally. Yeah, I mean, it's actually interesting to think about. I mean, Gilligan's Island is essentially like a locked room story. I was talking about yeah. locked room stories of the finalists. And that's always a question of like, how do you keep people stuck in a place, right? And I don't know where that island was supposed to be, not far from Hawaii, right? But somehow each week it was like they got close to being rescued, but then, you know, they blew it and then they were stuck another week. And and the other thing I remember about that show and those shows is they drove my mom out of her mind because she thought it was so stupid to watch Gilligan's Island. Right. And now I just want to say, Mom, look, I might not be writing books if it wasn't for Gilligan's Island. How do you know? know? And I think there wouldn't be a Lost without Gilligan's Island. Lost is just like another version of Gilligan's Island, right? 
they never had the smoke monster or whatever on Gilligan's Island, but it's, yeah, it's the same idea. I mean, it, I mean, the theme song references Robinson Crusoe. And yeah. when I went to college, the first literature class I ever took at college was like the history of the British novel. And my professor, and people would disagree with him, I imagine, made the case that Robinson Crusoe was the first novel and we read it. And it, it's a great book. I had no idea what Robinson Crusoe was like, but it was really an entertaining book. But then, I, of course, I was thinking of Gilligan's Island the whole time I was reading it because it's right there in the theme song. Yeah. It never ceases to amaze me, like, where that question takes us. So it just took you back to, you know, a course in college reading Robinson Crusoe. I love it. Yeah, yeah. I love it. So next up would be, what were you listening to, musical artists, when you were growing up? Who did you, who would be on your Walkman if, if you had one? Yeah, so again, as a child... Of the 80s, I went to high school in the 80s. 80s new wave music was just the thing, right? And so my all-time favorite band was Echo and the Bunnymen. They still are. They're still around. But a lot of those kinds of bands with the kinds of names that if you said the name to somebody, especially like to your parents or whatever, they would look at you like you were crazy, right? Like Echo and the Bunnymen and the Psychedelic Furs mm -hmm. and bands like that. And people would look at you like you were nuts. But it was kind of like in my high school, it was kind of, you know, I went to a pretty big high school and there were all sorts of different. It was an all guys high school. It was an all boys Catholic high school. So there were all these different groups of guys. Right. You know, but then, you know, the subset who listened to the 80s new wave British music like that, that became kind of the identifying mark that you were cool, that you listened to that music and not like, you know the guys who listen to Led Zeppelin and all that, and the guys who listen to country music and all that. So that, that was really my big thing. That's, those were the posters on my wall. In high yeah. School. Yeah. I remember we had, I went to a Catholic high school also, and I had this music teacher, Mrs. Corso, who was also our drama, you know, our drama coach or, or person. And I was involved in the drama program and she would always ask us to bring in like popular music for music class. And then she would give us her take on it. She would try and find elements of like faith and culture, if you will. And I remember bringing in Def Leppard Hysteria was the big cassette, right. you know, at the time it was 87, 88. And I brought that in and I played, I, I don't remember what song we played, but we played a song from it. And she's like, well, you know, this clearly is about, they're mocking the Trinity. And I'm like, huh? And I'm like, the song is, it was animal, right? It was like, yeah. it was about circus performers or something. I don't know. So when they're mocking the Trinity, you could see on the cover, you know, there's, there's a triangle and that's the sign of the Trinity. I'm like, oh, interesting. And then there, those faces, those faces on the cover. And I'm like, well, the album is called Hysteria. I mean, it is, you know, a condition. And right, right. anyway, it was just funny, you know, and, but, but stuff like that stayed with me. Like whenever I would listen to music, then I would be like, I wonder what this is really about. You know, if there's a deeper meaning behind it. And I guess she kind of, you know, I think she was wrong half the time, but. Well, that was the whole, I mean, that was the whole age of like, I remember slightly before that Highway to Hell came out. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And there was a family on our street and they had, to, you know, this was like when I was in sixth, seventh, eighth grade, whatever. And there was a family on our street and they had kids who were older than us, like in high school. And one of my friends borrowed Highway to Hell from him. And like, it was this like, you know, like we were using a Ouija board or something. We're going to listen to this record called Highway to Hell. And of course, I think like Highway to Hell, the song is about like being on tour, right? Yeah, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. About, you know, 
but ACDC, obviously, they leaned into that, like with the devil horns and sold brilliant mark. Talk about marketing, brilliant marketing. You just like make the thing that is going to terrify all the Catholic moms and all the kids are going to want to buy it. So that's yeah. right. That's right. Yeah. It's funny. I remember like listening to an interview with Angus Young and he's like, I will butcher an Australian accent, but he's like, oh, you know, uh, they thought that we were called ACDC because it stood for Antichrist Devil Children. Right, and he just right. starts laughing. I'm like, no, it's the stupid alternating current, you know, from whatever. But it's yeah, and, like, and like those guys, like, I mean, I think Malcolm is the one who yeah, died. He passed but like, away. Angus Young was like, I never did drugs. I never drank. Like he was <laughs> just like the straightest, most normal guy. I guess he smoked a lot of cigarettes and he moved. Yeah. But like that was it. There was like. You know, he was like sipping his cup of tea and like making bazillions of dollars. Yeah. And their lead singer, uh, Brian Johnson, is like known as one of the nicest guys ever. He <laughs> lives in Tampa, Florida now or like somewhere around there. But I digress. No, David, no, no. I do believe that we all have inner children in us. What are some of the ways, if any, you, you feed your inner child? Gosh, that's a good question. I mean, still, like I when I was growing up, I grew up in Cincinnati, which is a baseball mad city. And I grew up in a family that is baseball mad. My dad was a baseball coach. To this day, my mom is 90. My mom turned 90 back in February. And her greatest joy is to watch the Reds every night. And there are, and my mom is not alone. The, the city of Cincinnati is full of like women over the age of 80 who watch the Reds and, and follow the Reds. So like the baseball thing has been a through line in my life. When I was a kid, before I ever thought of being a writer, I thought my dream is to play for the Cincinnati Reds and to be the, the starting shortstop for the Cincinnati Reds when they win the World Series, right? Now, the only thing that held me back was just the complete lack of athletic talent that I have, right? <laughs> But to me, like still to this day, if I listen to the Reds game or I get caught up in rooting for the Reds, or we really should talk about the Bengals since they went to the Super Bowl this year. But getting caught up in that and, and like letting my emotions go up and down based on whether the team wins or loses or whatever, that is a through line all the way back to being a child and listening to them on the radio, even though the announcers have now changed, but it still just puts me in mind to being back in that house that I grew up in listening to that, dreaming of being a baseball player, you know, wishing the team would do better than they do. So that's kind of the big thing for me that I can think of. All right. I think I read in, in uh, something about you that you like walking around cemeteries. Yeah, I, I do like cemeteries. And then we moved here and we bought this house and right, it just coincidentally two blocks down the street is a massive cemetery. And actually there's a park and a cemetery right next to each other. So there's a walking track in the park, but people walk in the cemetery as well because it's a really nice cemetery with lots of trees and lots of birds. And you see occasionally deer and fox and all that. So it's just in the morning. That's just what I do. I take a walk and it's a way it's like it's it's really almost the only time of day that I'm away from electronic devices because I don't take my phone with me and it's relatively quiet. And so it's just, you know, kind of a meditative thing to walk in the cemetery and it's, you know, lots of trees and you're out in nature a little bit. So it just kind of clears my head in the morning. Very cool. Yeah. I didn't know if you were like a secret ghost hunter or uh, something like that, but it doesn't sound like it. No, no, I don't do that. I'm such a chicken that if I actually saw some supernatural phenomenon, I would run, but I haven't seen anything like that. Right. Run away. Yeah. <laughs> 
How about this? What emotions do you experience when you're kind of looking at a blank sheet of paper or blank computer screen, depending on how you write? What does the blank page do for you? It can be scary sometimes because I think when someone's writing a novel, that's a long time commitment that goes on over months. And there are days when it's relatively easy when the story is rolling along. It's relatively easy to sit down in front of the blank screen and say, I know what's going to happen today and I'm going to do it. Right. And then there are other days when I feel like I'm not sure what's going to happen that day. You know, something, you know, something has to change or something needs to, you know, the story needs to go in some direction that I'm not sure of. And that can be a little scary, right? That can be a little intimidating. I'm fortunate that I've done it long enough now that I don't get quite as freaked out about it as I did years ago. I mean, I know that I've done this enough times that I'm probably going to figure it out, but it still is a, it can be a frustrating, intimidating experience to sit and stare at the computer for a long period of time and not quite be sure where to go. Yeah. Two more, and then we're going to wrap up. I'm thinking about that period of time, you know, between you were 22 and 38. Were there any lessons about publishing that you feel like you learned the hard way? I wish looking back that I had taken a more business-like approach to it. I wish I had tried to learn more about the business. I feel like I didn't learn very much about the business or the practical side of the business until I was in the business. And if I were to give advice to younger writers, people who are just starting out, I would say, try to learn a little bit about the business. There's stuff you can't really learn until you're in the middle of it. But I would say, try to learn something about the business before you step into it. But really, the the most difficult lesson to learn, which seems obvious looking back, but that I didn't have figured out is when I was like 22... I didn't know how long it was going to take, and I didn't know how difficult it would be. Now, there's something to be said for a little bit of youthful ignorance like that. There's a benefit to that, to not quite knowing what you're getting into. I think of, because I like to compare myself to Han Solo, right? I remember, you know, in Star Wars, he would always say, like, don't quote the odds, right? Don't tell me the odds when C-3PO would say, like, the odds of navigating a an asteroid field or, you know, 5 billion to one. And he would say, never tell me the odds, right? Don't tell me the odds. Right. And I think writers and anybody who goes into a creative field like that, you kind of have to think that way. Don't tell me the odds. I don't want to know how rare it is for someone to achieve what I'm trying to achieve. Right. So there's a little benefit to that youthful ignorance, but I didn't know how hard it was going to be. I thought it was going to be like, Hey, you know, you sit down to write a book and, and, you know, pretty quickly you send it out and someone's going to publish it and, and life is going to be good. And I just didn't know that it was going to be such a long road and such a difficult road. And I should have known that because, you know, I took music lessons when I was a kid and I knew how hard it, you didn't just pick up a musical instrument and start playing beautiful music the first time. Right. You don't like walk out. I was like very in a small way involved in theater in high school. You didn't just like walk into a theater and like, you're the star of the show. I should have been able to translate those things to writing, but I didn't for some reason. But that was really the toughest thing to learn was like, this is the long haul and you don't ever know if it's going to pay off. Yeah. Well, kind of similar, if you could write a letter to your younger self, you know, that younger avid reader, any words of advice you would give the younger David Bell? 
I mean, if I'm able to write from this perspective, I would tell him to relax and to say, you know, it's going to work out. I think probably like a lot of people, I've, I can look back and say that I've wasted a lot of time worrying about things that I shouldn't have worried about or getting myself worked up about things that were ultimately not in my control, right? Writers have a limited amount of control over their careers. We were talking earlier about the whole team of people who make a book happen, right? Writers have some influence over that. I think when we sign a publishing contract, we have an obligation to participate in the selling and the marketing of the book to whatever extent we can. But I can't reach the whole world just as one person. And so I think I've driven myself out of my mind at times, worrying about stuff that was beyond my control or being concerned about comparison being the thief of joy, like trying to compare myself to other people and saying like, well, this person got this and this person got that and I don't have that or I don't have this. I would just tell myself, you know, like, try your best not to worry about that stuff. Enjoy the day-to-day process of writing the book. Enjoy the day-to-day process of a book coming out, you know, when a book does come out. And yes, you're responsible for a lot of what happens and you can't just abdicate responsibility for publishing, for uh, promoting the book or whatever, but try to enjoy the ride. Try to enjoy the ride as much as enjoy possible. The yes. Enjoy the ride. Yes. I love it. Enjoy the ride. Enjoying the ride with David Bell. Well, I've enjoyed this ride, David. I th- it's been great. Thank you so much for having me on again. I really enjoyed it. We've, of course, been talking to David Bell. The new book is The Finalist. It is available wherever books are sold. As you're listening to this, it is out. Uh, David, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.